0: Welcome, everyone, to the Football Odyssey Podcast. This is Aaron Harris, and today's episode will be another installment of our football film review series. And today's film will be the 1969 United Artist Drama, Number One, starring Charlton Heston and directed by Tom Grise that follows an aging NFL quarterback who struggles to accept the reality that his playing days are all but over and the consequences that bleed into his personal life as a result of his resistance. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe and share and follow me on Twitter and Instagram. Don't forget that you can also reach out to me directly in the contact section of the thefootballodyssey.com. And as always, thank you for listening. Ron Catlin, the best, one of a kind, number one, top of the heap, in the toughest game in town, Charlton Heston is Ron Catlin, number one, but not with his wife. The small world of Ron Catlin, knock him down. Trample them under, grind them to a pulp. But not with his friends. How about booing, babe? Can you live with that? But not with the fans. You're not even worth the price of a ticket anymore, anyway. Fifteen years in pro football leaves scars on the body. <laughs> on the soul. <laughs> and when you're number one, there's nowhere to go down. Let's hear it for Ron Catlin. Number one. Charlton Heston, Jessica Walter, number one. In color from United Artists, entertainment from Transamerica Corporation. This picture has been rated M. After experiencing a period of uncertainty in the early to mid-1960s, thanks to the rise of television and due to the changing demographics in America, The film industry began to broaden the kind of stories they told to include more boundary-pushing subject matter, allowing filmmakers to exercise more unconventional visual and narrative techniques to appeal to the boomer moviegoers who found more interest in realism and on-location shooting, as opposed to the grand theatrical scope of soundstage musicals and technicolor epics. Bonnie and Clyde from 1967 is widely acknowledged as being the film that kicked off the quote-unquote new Hollywood era of filmmaking that brought us films such as The Godfather, Taxi Driver, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and Saturday Night Fever, just to name a select few. Released in 1969, number one isn't a film that I would consider to be a boundary pusher, but it's certainly an unconventional example of, of a conventional sports narrative in which the aging athlete is inches away from the end of a stellar career and refuses to accept the cold hard truth of the matter. The film opens up with a slow motion montage right in the midst of a preseason football game between the Cleveland Browns and the New Orleans Saints, with a cool jazz score from composer Dominic Frontier playing in the background that sets the atmosphere for a film that was shot on location in New Orleans. The close-up shots of the muddied cleats and freeze-frame collision hits are reminiscent of the vintage NFL Films documentaries because Ed Sable, the founder of NFL Films, worked as a a technical assistant on the film and added the signature style of NFL Films to the football sequences. Quarterbacking the Saints is former NFL champion Ron Catlin, played by Charlton Heston, as he tries to rally his team to a come-from-behind victory. Cat, as he is referred to by his teammates and fans, is 40 years old and clearly a shell of his former self. After a punishing drive that results in a knee injury, Cat leaves the game and is taken back to the locker room, scowling not only because of the pain, but because it's becoming more apparent with every hit that his days as an NFL quarterback are numbered. His backup, Kelly Williams, comes in relief of Cat and throws a touchdown pass in a losing effort, but nonetheless gives the Saints fans something to cheer about at their old home field of Tulane Stadium. Reporters immediately swarm into the locker room, pressing the head coach on a potential quarterback change, though he quickly reaffirms his belief in Cat as the Saints QB. Cat leaves without talking to reporters and after signing a couple autographs for a pair of young boys, refuses to do the same for two middle-aged women, prompting warning them to yell at Kat saying that, quote, you're not even worth the price of a ticket anymore. Cat is picked up by his wife Julie, a successful fashion designer whose professional success has left uneasy feelings within Cat, making him feel as if she no longer is interested in his playing career, or even interested in him at all. Later in the night, Cat departs from Julie and goes to a housewarming party for his former teammate Richie, who's played by Bruce Dern. Throughout the night, he is accompanied by a young fan and a tennis shop owner named Anne, played by Diana Muldar, and the two have an instant spark on the screen, though the relationship doesn't materialize until much later in the film. Over the course of the next few days, The film explores the daily life of Cat as he ponders the future of his post-playing career. Richie offers him a chance to come work with him leasing cars, which Richie has made a handsome living doing, but even as Richie talks about the possibility of a job, Cat plays back memories of his playing career. Cat also takes a tour of a computer company, and it's even guaranteed to have a management position. But the thought of doing office work has zero appeal to an agitated cat, and he sternly expresses his frustration about wanting to play football, even though he is physically at odds to do so. The manager giving him the tour understands his plight, but gives him the uncensored truth that companies are no longer hiring middle-aged men with experience, and instead are bringing in kids out of college, and that eventually he won't be able to bring in men like him to drive a truck. These words resonate with Cat, but even as the manager speaks to him, Cat continues to zone out and thinks of the memories he had on the gridiron. After a couple of scenes that highlights the anxiety and mental collapse that Cat is experiencing, including a physical altercation with his wife and a poor display of character toward his backup quarterback who is vying for his position, Cat is given a slice of reassurance by his wife, Julie, after a severe argument, as she tells him that if he believes he can still do it, then do it and have no fear. And while there is a little hesitation at first, Cat rides with the team the night before the game, and about an hour before kickoff, realizes that he's not ready to hang up his cleats just yet. He runs out onto the field, as thousands of fans boo him relentlessly as the team prepares to kick off the regular season against the Dallas Cowboys. Kat starts at quarterback, and lays it out all on the line, as Julie cheers him on from the stands. But before you know it, the film ends on a very abrupt note, that without going into detail, will either stick with you after viewing, or may make you forget that you ever saw the movie at all, which, in and of itself, is unique. Now, when I went through some of the things that I liked and disliked in the film, I I found that I was mostly pleased with what I just saw, yes, because it is a football movie, but also because the film has a certain character to it, a certain style that makes the 1 hour and 43 minute runtime feel appropriate, not making me want to check and see how much time was left in the movie. It has enough personality and 1960s pop culture that the cinephiles would enjoy it, and it has enough football scenes that would make the Gridiron fans want to see a cinematic portrayal of the sport that also features real-life players from that era. Saints fans would especially find the film intriguing, even if it's not grounded in historical accuracy, since, as they well know, the Saints would not win a championship until their 2009 Super Bowl victory over the Indianapolis Colts in Super Bowl 44. I mentioned that the style of the movie stands out and makes the film engaging, and it's primarily done through the use of non-linear techniques and careful editing. The director of number one was Tom Grice, a filmmaker that I wasn't familiar with, in large part because he was predominantly a television director and writer for most of his career. Having come to Hollywood in the 1940s, Gryce worked as a talent agent before becoming a publicist for the esteemed film director Stanley Kramer. After switching to the production end of the business, Gryce climbed the ladder and eventually directed several episodes of critically acclaimed television shows of the 1960s, including Route 66, The Man from U.N.C.L.E., and East Side to West Side. Gryce had directed a few B-movies in the 1950s before investing himself in television. But in 1967, he returned to the big screen as the director of Will Penny, which would mark the first collaboration between Grise and and Heston. Grise's style in Number 1 is evident of having a 1960s flair to it, using camera and editing techniques often found in television at that time. I mentioned earlier in the plot synopsis that throughout the film, Cat reflects back on his glory days as a quarterback, and Grice incorporates the use of flashbacks to such an effective degree that it adds complexity to the character. He doesn't have long sequences of flashbacks that make you lose your place in the film, nor do they serve the purpose of giving an explanation of how Cat got to be in the state that he's in. Rather, each flashback ranges from roughly 15 seconds to a minute, and offers a brief glimpse into the psychology of a man yearning to relive those moments again. Moments that he didn't embrace enough, or maybe didn't even fully understand at the time. It's authentic, Cat having these brief memory trips, because it's something not unique to any of us, thinking of little moments throughout the day from parts of our lives that we wish we could relive again, or completely forget. Grice doesn't end his technical demonstration of the medium there. In the beginning of the film, Grice incorporates a split screen that fits four simultaneous scenes into one frame, beautifully executed by another television veteran, Richard Brockway, the editor of the film. Grice also shoots a sex scene in a pivotal scene that isn't explicit, but rather smooth and intimate, and creates a calm atmosphere through his use of fades and dissolves of close-up shots to make it feel all the more real. Another aspect of the film that stood out to me was the script, written by David Mosinger, another career TV writer making his foray into the film world. Now this is an area where I found that most viewers were unsatisfied, primarily because Kat was an unlikable character throughout the film, despite being relatable at times. The constant grumpy attitude and his confrontational anger, especially toward his wife, left many viewers struggling to find a reason to care about him and the future of his career. Personally, I couldn't care less if the protagonist is likable or even someone that I can sympathize with. Likeability oftentimes breeds predictability, which I also don't find comfort in when watching a movie. I want to see someone with complexity someone that has a unique disposition and how they operate within their environment, however normal or dysfunctional or amoral they may be. Likeability is certainly an additional quality that gives you a reason to invest in a character, but for me at least, the lack of likeability isn't enough to dismiss an actor's performance or the quality of the script. So even though the film was made with the approval of the NFL to use its trademark, the script doesn't try and sugarcoat the uncomfortable nature of a disgruntled man who's at a crossroads in life. I also mentioned earlier that number one is an unconventional example of a conventional sports narrative. I gave examples of the camel work in the editing as to how the filmmaker offered a visual component to cats in her plight. But from a script standpoint, I found the pacing to be appropriate and content. It was something that was self-contained and didn't try to sacrifice the character for the sake of the plot. The story of an aging athlete in decay is a theme found in sports films that often play out over the course of a single season in which the athlete comes to grips with his inevitable reality and decides to make the season his best and to prove his critics wrong, having to overcome injury and poor play or personal adversity along the way. Number one instead takes place over the course of a one-week period between the last preseason game and the first game of the regular season. Rather than spending more than half of the film in the locker room or on the practice field, the film follows the mundane, week-long journey of Cad, who is only at the beginning of his professional decay. By focusing on this deliberate pacing... It feels as if the film is less concerned with finding resolutions to Cat's problems, and is more concerned about the problems themselves. themselves. And even though there is an opportunity for redemption in the final act of the film, the ending makes the viewers wonder if it's already too late. Now, I don't have a ton of criticisms about the movie, not because it's flawless, but there really wasn't anything glaringly bad about the movie that detracted from my enjoyment of it. Many user reviewers on IMDb have criticized the casting of Charlton Heston as the leading man, claiming that he doesn't have the look of an athlete and didn't put forth a believable portrayal of a professional athlete. I half-heartedly agree with the criticism in that Heston, who was 46 at the time of production, does appear to be too old even for the role of an aging quarterback, but as far as his physical stature as a quarterback, I found him to be in line with many quarterbacks of the late 1960s, be it George Blanda or Joe Cap or Daryl LaMonica. Quarterbacks back then had height, as most of them still do now, and as Heston did, but they were just as much of the everyman as the people in the stands cheering them on were. They weren't conscious of keeping a strict diet or following tailor-made workout programs that made them ripped or perfectly sculpted nor did they even earn enough money to afford doing either one of these things that has become so common in contemporary professional football. Heston had the rugged look of a late 1960s NFL QB, and although there are conflicting reports of what he thought about the movie as a whole, he mentions in his autobiography that numerous athletes wrote to him and praised his performance, saying that it was an accurate depiction of an athlete reaching the end of his prime, which if true does speak volumes to Heston's status as an actor, who at the time of shooting had given critically acclaimed performances in The Ten Commandments, Ben-Hur, and Planet of the Apes. Heston went so far as insisting that the real-life NFL players that played in the movie hit him like they would in a real game, which unsurprisingly did result in a broken rib for Heston. The major drawback for me was the little significance that the supporting cast had in the film, Bruce Stern has a few scenes and makes his presence known, but Anne, who again was played by Diana Muldar, arrives within the first 15 minutes and instantly shows that she belongs on screen, but then disappears for most of the film. Her distance from the plot is something that contributes to the unconventional nature of the story that I admired, but this feels as if maybe it was taken too far for she almost ceases to become a character and instead is reduced to being just a plot device later on in the movie, which is a shame, since she had a good, albeit brief, chemistry with Heston on screen. Even the most prevalent supporting actor in the film, Cat's Wife Julie, played by Jessica Walter, who many of you might remember from Arrested Development, is definitely the most developed and well-acted supporting character in the picture. But the scripts would have better served her, not through more dialogue or more screen time, but through the use of flashbacks that made Cat's professional career and anxiety so real. Their marriage takes on a bigger role in the film, and some of their deep-seated issues come to light. But a brief flashback of their early marriage would have added more depth and more context of her being a wife at odds with a grieving and, frankly, a frightened husband. She does progress Kat's motivation and narrative forward, but a little more background in the same visual manner would have amplified her place in the story and, therefore, her place in Kat's psyche. When doing research for the film... I was also surprised to find out that not many film critics had offered their opinions of the movie. In fact, there were only two that I found. One was from renowned critic Leonard Maltin, who had a brief but concise view of the film when he wrote, quote, Heston turns in his loincloth for a jockstrap in this ludicrous drama about a New Orleans Saints quarterback who's fighting advancing age. Interesting subject matter deserves better treatment, unquote. Conversely, Howard Thompson of the New York Times gave the film a much more detailed and favorable review, writing, Charlton Heston, minus a beard, a loincloth, a toga, or the Red Sea, tackles a starkly unadorned role in one of the most interesting and admirable performances of his career. It is a brooding, scorching, and beautifully disciplined tour de force for the actor whose flexed facial muscles and cynical, measuring eyes dominate the movie, which has only one flaw, a nagging suggestion of paranoia. True that Forty is a decidedly overripe age for gridiron glory, yet many college graduate professionals have long since been able to wrench themselves away to success elsewhere. To some extent, Cat Catlin has only himself to blame, but as an unflinching study of a hanger-on athlete past his peak in fame, prodded by pride, ego, and fear of the future, the picture steers a steady, perceptive course under the direction of Tom Grise, Heston's collaborator on Will Penny. As a drama kept in tight, telling focus by the director, and the excellent, gristly dialogue of David Mosinger's screenplay, it rings true as it cuts deeper." Unquote. But don't take my word for it, and don't take Leonard's word for it, and don't take Howard's word for it. Check out the film for yourself. Number one is available on Amazon Prime. And again, I encourage both football fans that want to see gridiron action and cinephiles that want to indulge in creative filmmaking of the 1960s to see this movie. Thanks everyone for listening. Take care until next time.